in my 20s, I went all through this whole black revolutionary phase, okay? But it was very theoretical. It's like, okay, how do we obtain our freedom? How do we obtain liberation? How do we uh, combat this system of oppression? Like, all went so deep into it, right? <laughs> but when it comes down to it, liberation comes from growing food, period. I'm Amanda Alexander, founding executive director of the Detroit Justice Center. And I'm Whitley Granberry, staff attorney at DJC. And this is Freedom Dreams. The show where we believe another world is possible, and we're talking to the people who are building it. Casey unfortunately couldn't make it to today's taping, but they'll be back for season two. I'm going to do my best to make up for them today. I am so happy to have you co-host with me today, Whitley. So much of the work that you lead at DJC focuses on building collective power through our economic equity practice. You and that team support organizations who are launching community land trusts, worker-owned cooperatives, and other solidarity economy initiatives. And today, in our season one finale, we're talking about growing power and the connections with land. Yes, last time I was on Freedom Dreams was as a guest for the How Can Cooperative Economics Build Collective Power episode. We were joined by one of our clients, Jerry Hebron of Oakland Avenue Urban Farm, She's an amazing leader in Detroit's incredible urban farming movement. I'm excited to be back and to talk with other leaders in the city who are nurturing black farmers in Detroit by helping them to secure land. I'm Linnell and we're at Home at Gardens. Name may change, depends, I don't know. But for now, that's what it is. Over here on the west side of Detroit. It's called Home Ec because Home Ec was taken out of the schools, you know what I mean? And I think that's one of, with health, and home ec, like these are the things that we need to know to live, to learn, to survive. Like I had home ec classes, but the generation right under me did not. That's Linnell Herndon, one of the first beneficiaries of the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund, which we'll learn a lot about today. For me, I stand on the shoulders of my great, 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 great grandparents who I found out bought their farmland in 1865. That's Erin Bevel. She's a co-founder of the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund. Another one of the co-founders is Tafira Rushton, who you heard at the top. The Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund is rebuilding intergenerational land ownership for Black farmers in Detroit, helping them with land acquisition and farm support. I spoke with Aaron and Tafira this past summer at Linnell's Farm, Homec Gardens. Can you all talk about what was the inspiration behind getting this fund off of the ground last year? The inspiration. <laughs> I've been um, working with a lot of farmers on their land purchase process in the city. Uh, I, I began to collect some data around who owns their land, who doesn't. We have all this vacant land, right? We have like a third of our city is vacant, but accessing ownership has been a hurdle over the years, right? And so we got a, a land bank in the city and they acquired like, I mean, I think to date, I mean, I don't have the exact number, but it's something like 90,000 parcels or something like that in the city and a lot of power. Um, so it's also just like uh, watching people um, interface with the land bank and watching uh, people try to go through this process. has been kind of heartbreaking <laughs> because people get lost in the sauce, People don't understand how to navigate the systems. And that's kind of like a, that's like a thing for me. It's like helping people to navigate a system that's not even really for them, right? 
So Tafira began to realize if they could help folks come up with just a little bit of money, like a few thousand dollars in some cases, and help those local growers navigate the system of land purchase, they could do some real good. Um, and then 2020 came and we all were just like feeling the funk of 2020, like the real uh, inequities that just really came to the surface, right? And so we're like, let's do this. Like now's the time and we did it. We'll return to Aaron and Tafira shortly. But first, we want to jump back in time and give some historical context. It's what we do on Freedom Dreams. Freedom movements across the world have long connected land and liberation and power. For anti-colonial movements in the past and still today, regaining access to land that you and your people were displaced from is a core part of what it means to be free. I was lucky to learn this up close when I first went to South Africa um, way back in 2003. I was interviewing members of the Landless People's Movement for my college thesis. It was less than a decade after the transition from formal apartheid, and several social movements, including the LPM, had begun to question and challenge the direction that the country was going in. The Landless People's Movement even refused to recognize South Africa's democracy as legitimate because land had not changed hands. They said that South Africa was just a ballot box democracy. So yes, more people could vote, but it wasn't a true democracy because less than 3% of land had changed hands from white people to black people. The LPM and other movements said, we're not free while a quarter of the population still lives in shack settlements without water or electricity. We're not free as long as people don't have access to the HIV treatment that they need. So people began taking matters into their own hands and occupying land, fighting for housing, fighting against water shutoffs and demanding HIV treatment. I was fortunate to learn from LPM members and other activists who were still trying to salvage their revolution. They insisted that they had not risked their lives or spent decades in prison or exile. They hadn't buried comrades only to live in the most unequal and heavily securitized country on the planet. The freedom struggle wasn't just about the right to vote, just like it wasn't just about voting or civil rights in the U.S. We are not free until all of us have safe housing, safe water, a fulfilling livelihood, excellent health care. They taught me to be laser-focused on what true freedom means and not to settle for things like formal equality or even a beautiful-looking constitution like they have in South Africa. We're not free until material conditions have changed, and people have what they need to live well, and all of our communities are thriving. And so as we're exploring in this episode, having land is a core part of self-determination for communities, whether in South Africa or here in Detroit, or in the Land Back Movement, a call to return Native land to Native people in the Americas, Sometimes it's about having land to be able to feed yourself and your community, as we see in the urban farming movement here in Detroit. Sometimes it's about being able to stay put where you are and form a community land trust with your neighbors and not be priced out by gentrification. Sometimes it's about reclaiming ancestral lands. In each of these scenarios, it's about self-determination and developing or continuing a relationship with the land that's sustainable.
Those are some powerful lessons you learned, Amanda. Lessons about the ties between equal access to and care of land and our basic needs being met. Thank you for sharing. And we've got backup for you. Today, we're digging even more deeply into the history of Black land ownership in the U.S. Natalie Bazil is a writer and author of the book, compilation, and reflection of experiences called We Are Each Other's Harvest. When I started reading it, I was so taken by the stories that Natalie has collected of Black farmers who have persevered in the face of all of the threats to Black farming in the U.S., We wanted to talk with Natalie about the history of Black land loss because we think it helps to set the stage for the work of the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund. The most Black farmers in the United States was around 1920. There were about 925,000 Black farmers who owned about 14 million acres of land across the country. In 2017, the number of Black farmers had dwindled down to just under 45,000, which if you think about it is like the population of any um, state university like UT Austin, right? That land lost and the dramatic decline in Black land ownership has everything to do with the highly problematic practices deployed strategically by the USDA, also known as the United States Department of Agriculture. So what does that mean? It means that the USDA, which is a government agency created specifically to aid farmers with the the latest technology, um, all of the information that they need to grow different crops. Also, the USDA is an agency that was designed to lend farmers money that, that is the reason why that agency was created. But the dollars that were given to the USDA that, was supposed to, that were supposed to be lent to farmers, what happened on the local level was those federal dollars were distributed to these rural communities. And because most of the USDA agents in those r- local rural communities really treated those federal funds as their personal funds, right? And were the masters in these local communities and they were the people who were determining who would get access to that money. So black farmers, when they would go in at the end of the harvest season and they would apply for loans for the coming year, their loans were systematically rejected or declined. Their applications were literally torn up so that they were not able to get access to those federal funds. If, they, if their loans were approved, the, the approval process was extended well beyond the season when those farmers needed to buy seeds, needed to buy fertilizer, needed to buy equipment. So what did that mean? It meant that there was a cascading effect of these discriminatory practices. Because if you can't get the loan on time, that means you can't get the seeds on time. If you can't get the seeds on time, you can't plant on time. If you can't plant on time, you're not gonna have a viable crop to harvest the coming year. And if you don't have a viable crop to harvest, it means that you don't have the income to pay back the loan. This type of thing happened 
year after year, generation after generation, specifically to black farmers. And when black farmers would get farther and farther and farther behind with their loan payments, or they defaulted on their loan through no fault of their own, then the government would come in and the USDA would come in and they would seize these farmers' assets, not just their farms, but their homes, their cars, their personal assets. This is what led over generations to the dramatic decline in black farmers. In the late 80s, early 90s, there was a lawsuit. It was a class action lawsuit. Timothy Pigford was the named plaintiff and about 400 farmers sued the USDA, accusing them of these discriminatory practices. And the USDA actually acknowledged that yes, this had happened, right? They won that suit, but unfortunately the average farmer who was who participated in that class action lawsuit only got about $50,000, if they got anything at all. And often that settlement was taxed. And so if you are in debt in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? And you've managed to hold on to your land by your fingernails, a $50,000 settlement is no money. That's not going to help you. Since Pigford v. Glickman, there has been some new legislation introduced to right these historic wrongs with policy, namely the Justice for Black Farmers Act. The bill was announced in 2020 and has been championed by some amazing groups like the National Black Food and Justice Alliance. So maybe, after all of these years, there's some possibility of addressing this discrimination structurally. And there is talk of loan forgiveness. Uh, for the black farmers who have, you know, been struggling all these years. There is talk of land being set aside for the new generation of black farmers, black and brown and indigenous farmers, to gain access to land. But, you know, sadly enough, there is also a huge backlash now where people are claiming that this is reverse discrimination. And white farmers aren't getting their fair share when white farmers have been getting more than their fair share for the last hundred years. And so as much as I think people would want to celebrate, now there, there are new headwinds that these farmers are facing, right? Just in order, just as they are just trying to get what they are actually owed. We're clearly pulling for the Justice for Black Farmers Act. But in the meantime, it's the grassroots work of organizations like the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund that can make a difference in the short term. The Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund is working to counteract this history of land loss and has already supported 30 Black farmers through the process of obtaining land in Detroit. After a quick break, We'll head back to Home at Gardens to talk to the founders of the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund. Hi, my name is Felicia Thomas, and I'm the Associate Executive Director at the Detroit Justice Center. A big part of my role at DJC involves making sure that our day-to-day -day work aligns with our long-term goals and our long-term vision. For example, many of our clients face license suspensions over minor traffic violations trapping them in an unaffordable and seemingly unending cycle of fines and fees. 
We had to consider how to best advocate not only for them, but the hundreds of other Michiganders who face the same issues. Thanks in part to the advocacy of our attorneys, new traffic laws have been put in place in Michigan that will allow people to regain their driver's licenses, which has a positive impact on not just them and their families, but the community as a whole. While each of the teams at DJC is engaged in different work on a day-to-day basis from attorneys to community legal advocates, to our comms team and operations, we're all working toward the same goal, building a just Detroit. If you'd like to support us, you can donate to DJC at DetroitJustice.org forward slash donate. What does it take to get people to open their minds and change the way they think about critical social issues? To help answer this question, check out Shifting the Narrative, a limited podcast series about changing dominant narratives for progressive change. Over five episodes, the Opportunity Agenda examines case studies where individuals work together to change how society views marriage equality, the death penalty, poverty, and gun violence. The experiences of these activists can help us learn how to shift the narratives about other challenging issues today. Listen to Shifting the Narrative wherever you get your podcast. I am back at Home at Gardens on Detroit's West Side, and I'm sitting with Aaron Bevel and Tafira Rushton, co-founders of the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund. Their goal is to rebuild intergenerational land ownership for black farmers in Detroit. They launched the fund on Juneteenth, 2020. Here's Aaron Bevel. But I mean, Juneteenth also, of course, represents for for black people like that was the beginning of the black farmer in a lot of sense, because it's like that was the that was the end of slavery. So it was like you weren't farming for someone else. You weren't growing someone else's food. You weren't doing anything for anybody else. Like now it was the time when it was like we can dream about doing this for ourselves. And so it was it was just a beautiful kind of way to build together. Even like for me, I stand on the shoulders of my great, great, great great-grandparents who I found out bought their farmland in 1865 right so I mean like this is this is it's me and like when we talk about agriculture and we talk about returning to the land in this way and and black land reclamation like it's also about like ancestral justice and ancestral healing and like coming back to something a seed that was planted that year for us to be able to do this for ourselves so I mean Juneteenth is important for those reasons as well thank you uh, so you launched the fund. Your goal was $5,000. And what was the response? <laughs> <laughs> didn't, we, didn't we meet it in like one day? Yeah, was like, like, was like a couple like hours. Day. It was. Yeah. I was out kayaking. And I was like... <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to do it. <laughs> so I was like, it was Juneteenth. I was like, we're taking a day off. Before <laughs> <laughs> right, it was a national holiday, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And like, yeah, the response was amazing from the community. And I just really feel like, um, you know, folks in Detroit were ready to really put their um, put their money where their mouths was in terms of equity and justice. Um, and uh, and so, I mean, black, white, brown donors of all sizes, $5, $10, up to $10,000 donated. Um, and then we ended up with, um, I think 65,000 was the end, like within a month. It's amazing. Um, so then you have the money 
and then you were able to match that with what how many farmers you initially talk about that process of getting the money to the farmers and what kind of visions that they had for their farm 60 farmers applied and uh, so we went through this like rigorous review process. We were like, okay, now how do we choose? <laughs> how do we choose fairly? You know what I mean? Like, you know, we looked at like, you know, how was the farmer relating to the community and the neighborhood around them? You know, what steps have they done to do that? What kind of experience do they have farming? Is, you know, do they have, uh, will they make this a successful project? One of the bigger things that we really kind of distilled down and defined for this when we came when going into our second year of fundraising was like we, we we're about like black intergenerational farmland ownership. And so when we're able to kind of pick up and 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 maybe have that dream again, right? So like this is something that maybe we can pass down to our children or pass to another farmer or pass to another black agriculturalist. Like that's so powerful. And so I mean that's a really big piece. So we really made sure too that our application, you know, made sure that people understood like this is this is where we're at. I mean, it's not, I know that you guys are making some really deep connections between like land and self-determination and power and um, black food sovereignty, too. Can you say more about kind of like what you mean when you say black food sovereignty and self-determination? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that, you know, black food sovereignty is, you know, again, it's not just like this, this buzz, buzzword. Okay, so we're in the middle of Detroit, which didn't have grocery stores for years, right? And so like there was no place for people to go and like have choices about like fresh food and we're dealing with health disparities in our community. And of course that was pushed even further to the forefront with COVID. I mean, people who have high blood pressure, diabetes, like all these things that are impacted heavily by diet, right? And so, so when we talk about like, how can we liberate ourselves? How are we freeing ourselves? And how are we doing the things that we need to do so that we can be in control of the lives that we're living um, you know growing our own food again it's 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 very Sankofa for me right it's like we're reaching back and like taking something that that we started and that we brought to the world and like bringing it back to us right and so you know we live in a society where land ownership is the is the basis of wealth right and so when we can do it on land where we're secure right so so food sovereignty also includes this this land security piece for us because you know it's like if you're doing all this great gardening and growing all this wonderful food but like the city can come raise it you know just because they sold it to somebody else then it's, it's not like there's not security in that right there's still there's stress in that it's like it's like you're doing something but it's like it feels wrong it's like but it's not wrong because it's right because you're doing the right thing yeah yeah I mean for me I like I I you know in my 20s I went all through this whole black revolutionary phase okay but it was very theoretical is like, okay, how do we obtain our freedom? How do we obtain liberation? How do we uh, combat this system of oppression? Like, all went so deep into it, right? <laughs> but when it comes down to it, um, liberation comes from growing food, period. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how do you uh, take care of um, a people without being able to nurture them with food? You know what I mean? And so, this was just like a very, for me, Agri is just a very practical path toward liberation for black people. And whatever, you know, however it starts, I'm a, I'm a black nationalist, you know what I mean? So that may be controversial for some. I feel like we've been in this um, nation long enough and haven't, um, you know, haven't been able to truly step into leadership, truly, um, you know, do for self, you know what I mean? And so, 
Um, and, and I think that that term scares some white people, well-meaning white people, right? Because it's like, oh, you want to separate from us. It's, and it's not that. It's not that. It's like you have Chinese Americans who live here. You have Arab Americans who live here. You have Jewish Americans who live here, right? Um, but we have to have this base. We have to have this unity and shared understanding between us, right? And that comes from nationhood for me. You know what I mean? And so um, that shared unity um, can also lead toward the reparations that we're owed. If you look at any other community that has received reparations, they've done it under the banner of nationhood. You know, so um, we need to get on the same page about what reparations will look like for us. Um, what, what do we want to see from this country? Um, and all of this for me is like, okay, once I got to that point, I'm like, okay, so you want to have a nation? Oh, you need to feed these people <laughs> on some real, you know what I mean? On some real, you need to be able to feed these people. We need as many black producers as we can get. You know what I mean? And and whether you're growing uh, four eggplants today and next year you're growing four rows of eggplants and next year you're uh, taking that to market and the next year, like no matter how long it takes, we need to invest in our black producers. You know what I mean? Uh, they're the basis, you know, of any kind of unity that we're gonna come across. Last question we have for you is one that we ask everyone on the podcast. What is your freedom dream? So 50 or 100 years out, what is your dream? I want to change people's relationship to land. I want people to understand and re, re, recommit to like loving this land and knowing that like she feeds us, knowing that um, we owe her respect. I'd like to see a change in people's attitudes. And I think from that, um, you know, we'll see a lot of healing on our planet, both like these kind of racial disparities that we're talking about, um, but also um, some of the climate change issues that we're talking about. It all comes back to like, you know, understanding, appreciation and love for the land and respect. I've always wanted a sovereign nation, right? Like I've always like wanted a sovereign nation of our own. But, you know, to me, when I think about when I think about the planet and I think about the world, you know, I think about there being a re-indigenization of world culture. It's my dream that 50 or 100 years from now, people of color can feel a sense of peace and that a lot of the old systems and structures that continue to hamper our forward progress have really been deconstructed. That we're not fighting this same fight, you know? And that we are really living in a new day where people feel like the playing field is level, where they feel that they have access to opportunity you know, in, in a significant way. Those are the freedom dreams of three of our guests today, Natalie Bazil, Tafira Rushton, and Aaron Bevel. And thanks to Linnell Herndon for hosting us at her farm, Homec Gardens. You can support the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund by following the link in our show notes, and it is so worth supporting. One final point I want to make is that a lot of our discussion today has focused on land ownership. 
We also want to remember that this land is older and has a longer memory than we do. We want to honor and respect this land so that our babies and grandparents, our loved ones, can access this life-giving land. These are first-hand lessons I've learned from my work with burgeoning community land trusts and cooperative businesses in the city. Thank you so much, Whitley. The rest of the country can learn so much from the urban farming movement in Detroit and the work that many people have been doing here for decades. I think of folks like Malik Yakini and the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. I think of Wayne Curtis and Myrtle Thompson Curtis at Feedem Freedom Growers over on the east side. They, like the founders of the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund, have so much to teach us about how to grow food, but also how to sustain a community politically, spiritually, and economically. You can get Natalie Bazil's book, We Are Each Other's Harvest, from your local independent bookstore. And speaking of being each other's harvest, the title of Natalie's book comes from a Gwendolyn Brooks poem. It's called Paul Robeson, and we want to read it here. That time we all heard it, cool and clear, cutting across the hot grit of the day. The major voice, the adult voice, foregoing rolling river, foregoing tearful tale of bale and barge and other symptoms of an old despond. Warning, in music words, devout and large, that we are each other's harvest. We are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond. That's the perfect note to end this first season of Freedom Dreams on. We've talked to incredibly powerful organizers and community builders this season who have shown us what's possible when we orient toward each other, when we put our energy into building communities that leave no one behind. We've learned that it's possible to empty city jails and defund police departments. We've learned it's possible to create youth-led healing hubs, radical well-being centers, and to build worker-owned cooperative businesses. These are the people and the experiments that inspire me most and that keep me going when this work is hard, and it is so often hard. And we're only getting started. We'll be back with season two later this year. And in the meantime, we'll drop a couple of special episodes, so stay tuned. Freedom Dreams is a production of the Detroit Justice Center. Special thanks to our team, Zach Rosen, our producer, as well as L'Oreal West and Alana Malul for research and assistance. The Freedom Dreams theme song is by Asante. Artwork is by Gunnar and Hobbs. If you want to learn more about today's episode, head to freedomdreamspodcast.com. Email us a voice memo of your freedom dream at freedomdreams at detroitjustice.org. You can also write to us on social media. We're Freedom Dreams Pod on Instagram and Freedom Dream Pod on Twitter. If you feel compelled to donate to the work that we do, you can find us at DetroitJustice.org slash donate. And lastly, if you love this show and want us to find an even wider audience, please leave us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts.